Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. My name is Grace Ratley. I'll be your host for today's show. And today I am joined by Mauro Calabrese. Mauro is Associate Professor of Pharmacology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Welcome, Mauro. Hi, Grace. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, we're happy to have you on. So can you tell us a little bit about your current research on long non-coding RNAs? Yeah. So broadly speaking, we are trying to understand fundamental mechanisms through which our genome is regulated with you know, the understanding that by defining those mechanisms, we're going to learn a lot about you know, the basic biology that goes on inside of our bodies. And also we're going to learn about really important events that give rise to and sustain human disease. So what, what we study in my lab are these molecules called long non-coding RNAs. You know, unlike a typical messenger RNA that encodes information for protein, these RNAs themselves are sort of the end product. Our genomes, the mammalian genome, makes lots and lots of non-coding RNA, like billions of base pairs of it, actually, the majority of which uh, we really don't know what its function is. It may not have a function, or maybe it does. And we know from a few really amazing examples, these are genes that people have discovered now upwards of 30 years ago, that at least a subset of long non-coding RNAs play really incredible roles in gene regulation. I can give you a specific example. It's an essential gene. It's an RNA, a piece of RNA that's expressed from the X chromosome in all female mammals. And the function of this RNA is to turn off one X chromosome in every cell essentially for the life of the organism. So, you know, this piece of RNA can transcriptionally silence 165 million base pairs of DNA for 100 years in a billion cell divisions. That's really incredible. And we f- don't fully understand how it works, uh, which is interesting. And then beyond that, you know, there's this sort of universe of long non-coding RNAs that get produced by our genome and we have no idea you know, how they work or what they do or many of them, whether they have a function. And so, you know, we use genomics and genetics and cell biology and microscopy and biochemistry and a lot of computational biology to try and understand how long non-coding RNAs regulate gene expression and develop new experimental and computational approaches that will enable others to uh, do the same. I noted that your lab also looks at these lung non-coding RNAs in the context of cancer. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we are not so explicitly focused on cancer, but some of the RNAs that we study do play roles in cancers. But I think sort of the biggest area that we hope to impact, like in regard to human disease and, and cancer is a really I don't know if low-hanging fruit is the right word, but there's a lot of really great genomic data in cancers. We know, you know what RNAs are expressed in different types of cancers, and so I think that area is really ripe for discovery. And uh, the biggest roadblock in the field is we really don't have an understanding of, at the really basic level, what's the relationship between the sequence of a non-coding RNA and its function in the cell. For the listeners that know a little bit about proteins, you know, we relatively have a much more sophisticated understanding of how protein sequence relates to function to the effect that you could take a protein that's never been studied before and compare it to all other proteins. And, and chances are you might find a piece of protein that was similar to a previously studied protein, and that would give you uh, really important clues as to the mechanism of your unstudied protein. So like if a protein has a kinase domain, there's a good chance it's a kinase. 
And those types of understood relationships just don't exist in the long non-coding RNA field. And so the effect of that is that in a disease like cancer, people have looked at this many different ways, thousands of different long non-coding RNAs that are differentially expressed, that correlate with different forms of metastasis, that correlate with different cancers, that appear to be, if you like knock down these transcripts, they appear to have therapeutic effects. And I believe clinical trials started last year targeting a few long non-coding RNAs through Ionis, you know, and, and possibly some other um, pharmaceutical companies. So these are like, there's RNAs that get expressed in cells. Some of them almost certainly are drug targets, but we have absolutely no idea how to know which ones we should be thinking about targeting and what they might do in the cell. By sort of focusing our efforts on understanding a few non-coding RNAs whose functions are well-known we're starting to get insight into what are the building blocks that non-coding RNAs use to encode function and ultimately hoping to sort of develop a framework that will allow us to sort of computationally predict or identify regulatory function in essentially any non-coding RNA. And I think, you know, cancer is an area that I'm really excited to move into uh, once we have a better handle on you know, the approaches that we're trying to develop, because I think there's a lot to discover in that space. Yeah, yeah. Cancer, I think, is a really great place to start because you have such amazing databases of, of genetic information and gene expression and, and all of those sorts of things. And I was going to ask how you ended up in the Department of Pharmacology, because from what it sounds like, a lot of the work you do is in genetics. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, great question. People ask me that all the time. You know, science is so interdisciplinary these days. You know, I think our work certainly fits within pharmacology, and I'll tell you why in a second. But easily, we could be in a genetics department or a cell biology department or even a biochemistry department. So it's everything is, is just cross-disciplinary. But I didn't necessarily apply specifically to pharmacology departments when I was um, trying to get a faculty position. But there was a position that was open in this department. And the former chair of the department, who was Gary Johnson at the time, I think, sort of recognized the potential, you know, the, the things that I was just talking about in regards to cancer, like there are these really tantalizing examples of like, okay, we know there's a few non-coding RNAs that appear to be drivers of metastasis and probably can be targeted with antisense oligos or, or even small molecules targeting structure of RNA. You know, there's sort of a next wave of therapeutics that are going to involve RNA. And, and this was true in 2014 when I started the job, which is, I think, why I got brought into this department. But um, of course, everyone can appreciate it now, the power of RNA you know, delivery through these nanoparticles that have saved hundreds of thousands of lives through vaccines. So RNA is not something that historically has been drugged or a drug, but I believe in the future, the next you know, 10 to 20 years, we're going to see more and more RNA-based therapeutics. And so that's how our research fits into pharmacology. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so fascinating. I'm excited to see how the technology uh, that is the basis of the mRNA vaccine for COVID-19 is going to influence a lot of science because, I mean, like you said, historically, it just wasn't possible because RNA is so unstable. It's unstable. It's big. And I mean, although I guess the technology that, you know, Moderna and, and Pfizer are taking advantage of, like the, the discovery or the connection that you could deliver messenger RNA as a therapeutic, like even in the 80s, it just has, I think for reasons that you just said, like is, has been sort of 
taken some time to take off. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, that seems like there's just a lot of new possibilities. And I also am excited to see uh, what happens. Yeah. And, and there's also that kind of awareness piece of it. You know, it's like, I know it existed before, but I wasn't familiar with it. I guess I, I can't say that I'm an RNA biologist, though. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I've been studying RNA for a long time, and I wasn't familiar with it either. So, I mean, that and that doesn't mean that, you know, I sh- maybe I should have been familiar with it. But but anyway, like, the awareness is a, is a big deal. And, and now we're all aware. Yeah, exactly. How was your lab affected by the pandemic when it started? Yeah, I think it was brutal for us and brutal for many industries, and it continues to be brutal for many industries, but it's a lot better for us now than it was. I remember it well, I'm sure I'll always remember it. You know, like you heard about this virus and and it was in China, and then you heard like, oh my gosh, they're like shutting down essentially all of China, pop-up hospitals in Wuhan. And and then it was like getting closer, like beginning of March, it was like, Ooh, maybe it's going to get here. A week later, it was like, okay, it's here. There was like a few days where UNC hadn't shut down. Okay, we know it's coming because everything had shut down. So we shut down like a day earlier. We're just like, we can't handle this. It's definitely happening. We're just going to close everything. And so, yeah, we just stopped research, just pulled the plug on it. And we were out of the lab for three months. But UNC opened up in June of 2020 with masks at 50% capacity. And that enabled us to at least get back into the lab. But it was, you know, just a mentally extremely challenging year. People that I know, they lost loved ones. Many people experienced extreme forms of mental stress. And we weren't spared from that in the lab, you know. So as a father, you know, two young kids, and my wife also has a job, we had zero childcare. So how do you do that? Like not very well. You know, it was like really hard on everybody. It was very hard on my family because our kids didn't, they got pulled out of school and my son is like six months old and my daughter's like three and a half and somebody needs to pay attention to them because they're kids and they they need that, you know? So it was a wreck. We were exceedingly careful in the lab and we managed to make some progress during the year, but it was really limited uh, relative to what we would have expected. And, And things began to come online once we all got vaccinated. But it's still, you know, a challenge. I mean, I think we need to be wearing masks at work. I'm in a private office, so I'm not wearing a mask right now, but everyone that's in the lab wears masks all day. So I think people do more work at home uh, than they would otherwise, uh, which I think is fair. You know, you get your face gets hot. So <laughs> it's, it's a fact. So we're still like kind of a little fragmented as a lab because we're doing more remote work than we, we used to. The remoteness of Zoom and, you know, it's enabling on one level, but it's also uh, stifling and I think limits the creativity that we get from being all together for a full eight hours a day. And so we still haven't gotten that back. And I don't know when it may be in a year or two, when, when we stop having to wear masks at work, we're making discoveries, we're making good progress, we're figuring things out that are interesting and important. But I don't think we're operating at the same level that we were before, but we're close. It's good to hear that you guys are rebounding a little bit now, although it does make me worried looking at a lot of the numbers, especially around North Carolina. You know, I have a lot of friends going back to school and everything is increasing again, and it does make you a little nervous. <laughs> yeah, it does. I, You know, I think um, I totally agree I guess the flip side is that 
UNC has been really the the research operations. Of course, like the Delta variant is different than it was. It's far more contagious. But I don't think there was like a single case where they could say there was workplace transmission at UNC at all last year, like in the research, like all of School of Medicine. People are wearing masks. They're adhering to it. And over the last year, I think objectively, it was a very safe place to work. And so even though the Delta variant is like 10 times as contagious as the original coronavirus, I think it still remains like a pretty safe place to work. For now, fortunately, like for most, most of us are being vaccinated. And so I'm not immune to getting COVID, but it's less likely and it's less likely that it'll be severe. And so this time, even though cases are similarly high now and probably will be higher than they were in January of last year soon. I don't think a lot of that is happening at work at UNC or in even in classes. I think it's the personal spaces where people are relaxing and interacting closely where the bulk of the transmission is. Yeah, yeah, very true, very true. Those darn college students partying. Uh, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's been a hard year, a hard year and a half. It's been interesting to see how the pandemic has sped up science in some ways, but also how it's slowed science down in other ways. It'll be interesting to see how it works out going forward. Yeah, but I think I've always enjoyed what I do and I don't necessarily do it for the benefit to public health. I just, I think I'm interested in it, but I do firmly believe that there's a, a strong benefit to humankind as well as an economic benefit to research. And I think the pandemic on one level is is inspiring and, and for what you just said, like seeing us able to develop these vaccines and in a record amount of time and they're safe and they're highly effective and then all the amazing research that's going on in regard to the coronavirus, I, I think has really underscored the necessity for science and its power. It's It's been great to see all of the collaborative efforts, industry and government and universities working all together. It's kind of like you know, like a world war, you know, it's like everyone, all the industries, all the people are coming together to fight not an enemy, but a virus. Yeah, I think that's when we're at our best when we come together. Yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you got into RNA biology and and how you became interested in these long known coding RNAs. Happy to do so. It's it's a little bit by chance, you know, you make these decisions over the course of your life and then you just kind of like the next decision follows. So I guess I was interested in gene regulation in college. Like I found it to be like just really interesting. There's like all this DNA and it gets read in different ways and different cells at different times. And that was like really interesting to me. And then I went to graduate school at MIT and, you know, when you're a first year graduate student, you like rotate in different labs. And pretty much by dumb luck, I rotated in Phil Sharp's lab. Phil Sharp won the Nobel Prize in in 1991 for the discovery of splicing and has just made all these really incredible contributions to our understanding of biology and RNA. And I knew I was interested in mammalian gene regulation. So I, I rotated in Phil's lab and it was really great. So I ended up joining that lab. And so that sort of let me cultivate my interest in RNA. And and when I was in Phil's lab, we were studying microRNAs, which are short. Um, They're 21 to 23 nucleotides long, but they're like genes. Some of them are extremely conserved, uh, incredibly, even though they're teeny tiny and short. And they, they do amazing things like RNA tends to do. 
so we were studying microRNAs, and then I, I became aware of some of the work that was done by researchers in, at that point, was like the nascent uh, long non-coding RNA field. So this RNA that I, not sure I mentioned it by name, but I referenced it very loosely at the beginning of our conversation called EXIST, X-I-S-T, which the function of this RNA is to turn off the whole X chromosome. There was a lot of really interesting breakthrough studies on this EXIST long non-coding RNA when I was a graduate student. And those were pretty cool to me. And there was also independently some breakthrough studies on a different long non-coding RNA that has a function that's analogous to exist. You know, all these RNAs have weird names. They're just gene names, but this RNA is called AIR. And it was like this really, I mean, it is, we study it in my lab now, amazingly strange RNA. It's huge. It's 90,000 nucleotides long, which is like crazy. It's unspliced, highly unstable, but the function is to silence gene expression over about one third of mouse chromosome 17. And it's not even conserved actually outside of rodents. So it's got this incredible biological activity that has appeared to have you know evolved very recently in evolution. Anyway, some really amazing work from a researcher in Austria who has unfortunately since passed away, Denise Barlow. But I remember reading some of her papers as well as these papers from the EXIST field while I was a graduate student at Phil's lab. They piqued my interest. And ultimately, I decided to pursue that area of research for postdoc because it was I thought it was really interesting. And, and so I did that. Uh, I was a postdoc here at UNC in Terry Magnuson's lab in the genetics department. I wasn't necessarily set on starting my own lab, but I was just doing what I thought was the next best thing, which was to pursue a postdoc in an area that I found to be interesting. And I still found it to be interesting at the end of my postdoc. And I had enough success to convince the pharmacology department to hire me. Uh, and so that sort of brings us to the present day, I guess, an abridged version. But Yeah, yeah. And your lab, you have such a variety of approaches in computational biology, microscopy. How did all of that come together? Yeah, you know, I think um, you just sort of do what needs to be done and get into it a little bit at a time. I was a graduate student, like, right at the inflection point of the sequencing revolution. When I started graduate school, we were sequencing microRNAs by hand. We would, like, pick these little bacterial colonies. And, like, after, like, three weeks of work, you would get 300 sequences back. And then all of a sudden, there was this instrument that came online from a company that was bought by Roche and then I think has gone under. But all of a sudden, instead of for three weeks of work, instead of getting 300 sequences, you would get 10,000 sequences, 300 times more. And then like a few months later, instead of 10,000 sequences, you could easily get 10 million sequences. So like in the span of nine months, it was like the genome revolution. And, and you know, so I learned computational biology for that and then go to a postdoc and it was a genetics lab. And I the questions arise and you want to figure out what are the most important questions to answer and what are the things I need to understand to answer these questions. And, and if they're interesting enough to learn and if they're within your capacity, like I'm not a math person, so structural biology is probably something I would never be able to pick up myself. But you just sort of over time, I think, figure stuff out. Yeah, certainly. So we work a lot with biotech companies um, and generally like people who have such varied experience and who have a lot of uh, random skills tend to do very well in biotech companies. Have you ever considered joining a biotech or starting a biotech? Yeah, I have considered it. The benefit of working in an academic lab is you, as long as you can convince somebody that it's 
they should fund your research. Uh, you can do what you find to be the most interesting. And I think we've sort of like fallen into this path that I've described. And, and in particular, I think the computational objectives that we have, like we've started to make some insight into how we can computationally predict the function of a non-coding RNA. And I, and I don't think we've really finished that work yet. So I'd like us to get there. And I think when we get there, it's going to be pretty exciting. But I'm not sure that anything that we have done so far, or maybe that we will do is what's the word is like IPable, you know, like it's information. We're trying to figure out how to figure things out. And that's, and when we figure that out, we're going to publish it and make it public. So I think some people's research, especially in pharmacology, like, oh, like we have this protein that we study in a mutation and we're developing a small molecule to fit in this pocket. And like, you can then spin off that molecule in IP. We're, we haven't quite done that work, but I think about it. Many of my friends actually in graduates from graduate school went into industry and now they're like doing all these amazing things at high levels in, in these biotech companies. And I'm like, wow, that would have been cool. But it was this was my path and it's been great so far, but I'm not averse to doing work in the biotech sphere as well. Yeah, your, your path hasn't ended yet. So you, you still got time. Right. <laughs> and if IPable isn't a word that's used in biotech, I think they should add it to the biotech dictionary. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what skills do you think are most important for scientists today? You know, I think a lot of them are skills that are transferable to everything. You know, focus. This is maybe a weird thing to say, but we live in a very like distracted time, especially during the pandemic. I mean, the news cycle is like from one crisis to the next. And there's like all these things that take our focus away, like text messages and email and different forms of social media. And I think to really do excellent work, somehow you need to like put your blinders on and think deeply about stuff, especially like if you're trying to make discoveries, you know, figure out things that we don't know yet really takes, I think, a lot of ruminating and deep thought. So an ability to focus a strong interest in the work that you do, because that's going to give you those insights, like you're going to be thinking about your work and you're going to have the insights but if you don't find it so interesting, then you're not really going to be thinking about it that much. And that's fine, but it's not great for research. And then I think an ability to communicate. So it's not enough. It's never enough, I think, to work in a silo. Our best advances as humankind have come from collaborative efforts. And I think it's probably always been true, but it's like definitely true today, especially the more complex a project is, the more likely it is that you're going to be needing to rely on multiple people to achieve an objective. And at the, the bioinformatics CRO, like you guys, I'm sure understand this. You have computational biologists and you have biologists who don't understand computational. And, you know, communication is really key. Like if you have people that communicate well, then the speed of the project is like orders of magnitude more than two people that are not communicating well. So I find that to be extremely true with our work as well. Those are the big ones, I think. You know, focus, interest, and an ability to communicate. If you can do those three things, you, you can pretty much do anything. So the things that you've mentioned are traditionally very difficult to learn. So the communication, like team management, that's very difficult. And focus is, I mean, it's, it's like impossible. I mean, really. Yeah. So what are some ways that people can cultivate these skills? 
Yeah. And I think that's a great question. And I do think we all need to cultivate them. They're not necessarily taught in class and they're not really taught in society either. You know, like the way that the news communicates to us is not really the way that we should communicate to each other. The way that like Facebook inundates us with distractions is not how we like, you know, so you really have to like steal your mind against the forces of the world that we live in to varying success. I have been able to do this. I mean, I think there's times like, especially last year during the election where I was unable to focus. I'm actually much of last year, I was unable to focus for a lot of reasons and I wasn't alone. But I think making dedicated time to shut off external communication via text messages, like take your Apple watch off, don't listen to music, turn off Slack, setting aside time to make sure that you do that. I think that's what I do whether or not that's a transferable skill. But but I find that to be very helpful. The times when I'm able to not check my email every five seconds and not look at the news every five seconds, like those are the days that I feel the best about the work that I've done. And those are the days that I've accomplished the most. I think similarly in terms of communication, that's something that I've, I've learned. Writing in particular in my job is essential and it's not anything that I was formally trained in. I took like an English class in high school and I learned that a paragraph has a topic sentence and three sentences after it that support the topic, which is true sometimes, but most paragraphs are not, that's not actually the best way to write, you know, like, but there is a structure and understanding what people expect and how to include it in a document and how to write words that, you know, are going to give you the highest probability of success communicating to your audience. That's something I've like read about. I mean, by necessity, like if I can't write, then I don't, I don't have money to fund my research. So like anything, essentially, you have to sort of set a goal and work towards it and practice and seek out resources that can help you. And in, in terms of communication, if you're a natural communicator, then you have a leg up. But if it's something that you want to improve, there's leadership courses, there's books that people would recommend, I think, and practice and engage and, and self-evaluate. And, and over time, you will improve. So as we wrap up this episode, I always like to ask our guests what advice they have for early career scientists or graduate student postdocs who are looking to go into a similar path that you're following. So what are some of the lessons that you've learned and, and words of wisdom that you might share with younger scientists? Yeah, you know, the thing I tell many of the graduate students I interact with and I would I would share here is to do your best to figure out what it is that you are interested in. And, you know, if you're going to join a lab or do a postdoc or pick a research project or join a company to the best that you're able to do something that you find interesting and that you believe in the mission, like I, this work is interesting to me and I believe that it's worthwhile. And I feel like that's like the number one thing. I couldn't tell you why I'm interested in the work that I do. I just find it interesting. And I don't think I need to justify it. It's interesting to me and, and I can tell you why it's important. And so, you know, I think that's true. I suspect for other people, like you don't have to justify it to anybody. It's meaningful to you and just tap into that feeling, you know, like don't overthink it. But if you find yourself like it's a slog, it's bound to happen just sort of reflect on that. And when it comes time to make another career decision, then like, you know, think about the things that you've done and what you enjoyed and what you didn't enjoy. And I think follow your interests as best as you're able. And that's going to get you 
uh, really far because it's, you know, the more interested you are, the more excited you are, the better work you're going to do, the harder you're going to work and the, the greater successes that you'll have. Excellent advice. So thank you so much, Marl, for coming on the podcast and sharing your wisdom and your experiences. I had a really great time talking with you today. Yeah, Grace, it was really fun.